So welcome along to our Sermon Expanded for the next chapter, the next part of our series on Genesis. And tonight and in this episode we'll be looking at Genesis 15 and God's covenant with Abraham. We have skipped out a couple of chapters. Our last one we looked at was in chapter 12 about the call of Abram. We have then a few chapters where Abram and Lot, Abram's nephew Lot, they separate and go different directions. They have then some things happen and Abram rescues Lot. And then we have this covenant that God makes with Abram. So you can read through those chapters yourselves. You can see what happens in the interim period. But we are going into this chapter 15, which I'm not going to read the whole way through. I'll read some sections of it for you and we'll deal with those. But there's a couple of big ideas that we'll be dealing with in this. And the, the week that this was a sermon, the week that it was preached, was our Harvest Sunday. And so in Harvest, Harvest is a it's a traditional time. A lot of churches would have done this years ago in a, in a big, big way. The church is decorated. There's maybe a Friday night service or maybe a Sunday night service. There are other times when the farmers have brought in all their crops, all the work is done and everything is kind of finished uh, the, the storehouses barns are, are ready for uh, the winter and so it was an opportunity for a church for a community to get together to give a thanksgiving to God to give God thanks for the harvest that has just been brought in for the way in which he has provided once again for them and the blessing that he has given them because as we mentioned each harvest we look around at the world around us we see the creation around us and the we see all the technological advances that we have in this creation and in our worlds and in our cultures and societies. Uh, and there is so much that we begin to think that we make it all, that humankind is able to create, which is completely true. We are able to create, we are able to build, we are able to research, we are able to make these wonderful advances in medicine and technology and even law and politics and society's order but then we look at even the change that happens in the world around us uh, and we look at the crops that come in once again and all those things are provided for us we have a hand in them but ultimately we don't grow them we're starting to get to that point on the news there recently they were talking about um meat that's grown in a lab and how you would feel about that they were testing out ch chicken goujons that were lab grown essentially they were the dna was taken off a feather if i can remember correctly and so they created this chicken goujon wasn't from a chicken it was lab goujon uh, and trying to get people to think through the effects of this would you eat it would you would you eat that thinking about well what does it mean to eat that how does that affect our land how does that affect climate change how does that affect all that we do so we can often think that we create we sustain everything hinges around us but harvest is a time to remember that there is something other than us in this world there is this creation which we depend on in many ways yes we can go to tesco's and get all sorts of things at all times of the day and night we can get exotic fruits and all kinds of vegetables flown in from all around the world and we can do that in the middle of the night if we want to and so we go to these places but those places come from the land they come from the 
ground in many ways and actually Tesco's and other places are trying to go back to that a little bit. You may have noticed this in their advertising and in their boards within the stores. It's shop local, it's, well not sure, it's shop local, but the big brand, but we, we, we're, our foods, our milk, our meats, our dairy products, they're all from local farmers. We are supporting the local community. Look at us, and they're doing it from a monetary point of view. But they're also recognizing that we like that as consumers. We like to think we're giving back something that we're supporting locally, that we're not supporting uh, and seeing, or we're not supporting people on the other side of the world and seeing our own farmers and producers go out of business. And so there's a drive for that because what, what they produce is from the land, whether it's vegetables, whether it's fruits, whether it's meats, all these things come from a provision that is beyond us, which relies on. And that's why we see uh, it hits the news now and again when there are there's too much rain or there's not enough rain or the farmers aren't happy again because their crops have disappeared or about the use of pesticides on the crops. We see because these things that are outside of our control have huge impacts on what the ground, what the land, what this earth can produce. And so as much as we would love to assume that it's all just kind of easy, you only need to talk to a farmer to discover it's not. And we need to get back to that harvest thanks of realising where this provision comes from. Quick story, when I was um, younger, uh, about 11 years ago now, I went with a team from Exodus. Exodus an organisation started off in the North Coast. Um, it's moved to Lisbon and other parts of the country. And Exodus was encouraging us to go on, on teams abroad to try and broaden our horizons, try and understand and, and serve in lots of ways. And so myself and a friend of Naomi's actually led a, a team out to Uganda. And it was a team of quite... Um, I'm trying to pick the best word here. Girls from Methody in Victoria who lived very privileged lives. Maybe not super privileged, maybe not kind of celebrity level privilege, but they lived very protected, privileged lives. They were given all kinds of things and they had all kinds of things. They probably didn't have a lot of wants for the basics in life is the best way to put it. So these girls went out to Uganda, had, a, had an amazing time, saw things that they... Um, would never have seen in this country. They were able to serve and give to people and get to know kids and meet kids who have no parents, who were in orphanages, who were walking miles to school, who had this incredible joy as well. But we were living on this campus, this um, these houses on the school grounds, very small school in Uganda, Katetika. Uh, and there was a cook who looked after, like, looked after us and we ate a lot of rice, we ate a lot of soup. But as the week went, the two weeks went on, the number of chickens would disappear. And so you had lots of chickens at the start of the two weeks, and as the two weeks disappeared, the chickens would get less and less. They actually butchered a cow at one point, but that that kind of, that for these girls, that was just kind of just odd or like a horror film. And so that, that was a big deal, but not as big as the fact that these chickens just kept disappearing. And we were eating chicken. We had chicken in our rice, we had chicken in our soup. But they came to me at one point and were just like, where, where are all these chickens going? What's happening to them? 
and it took us a few minutes to talk through the reasons of, well, why are these chickens disappearing and why are you eating chicken? And so can we connect these two events, occurrences, to discover what's happening to these chickens and why you're eating chicken? They live very privileged lives where their chicken was provided to them, probably just from the fridge, but their chicken came from Marks and Spencer's in Lisburn Road. There was no connection beyond that. And so harvest is a great time for us to remember and remind ourselves that it doesn't just come off a shelf, that there is a chain, that there is something going right back and there is a provision along the way by something other than ourselves and what we can produce. And in the Christian faith, we believe that is God. And so we celebrate harvest to remind ourselves and give thanks of God's provision in this world and on this earth. Uh, and that's what we celebrated a couple of Sundays ago on the 7th. And we looked at this passage of the God's covenant with Abraham, which is a strange passage. There were there are others that you would go to a bit more quickly that you would look at and might give that message a little bit more easily and more precisely. But I want to look at this con to continue through our series on Genesis. And not only that for that reason, but I believe that this passage also has a provision within it. The promise that we see for Abram always seems too good to be true. Even when he's called, when he's told about it, it's this lofty, it's this, I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you, I will multiply you, all the ends of the earth will be blessed through you. And Abraham's kind of going, class, brilliant, this is great, but in Genesis 15, after all these things, God comes to him and says, I will be your shield, your reward shall be very great. And Abraham goes, well, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, who's a servant, and so he's not mine. And so all my stuff and all the things that I have and all that I've acquired, all the people, all the possessions I have, will go to him. And that's that's fine if that's what you want. But you've talked about my seed and the promise being through my seed. And so if you give me no offspring... How How is this going to work? And God says to him, go outside, look toward heaven. And this is in verse 7 of Genesis 15. Sorry, verse 5, Genesis 15. Look toward heaven, number the stars, if you are able to number them. So your offspring shall be. Again, uh, an amazing, high, lofty, huge promise for Abram. And Abram believes the Lord and it is counted to him as righteousness. That's the first time we come across that phrase. Counted to him as righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Um, this verse, as I'm reading here from a, a commentary, this verse in Genesis is quoted four times in the New Testament in Romans, Galatians, and James. Faith in God is something that everyone in the Bible was expected to exercise. It entails trust in or confident reliance on God based on the truthfulness of his words and it will lead to obeying his commands. A person's faith or lack of faith is the most apparent in crises such as Abram was facing. He believed God would give him a son despite many years of childlessness when he was old and his wife Sarah was old. Righteousness is the fundamental Old Testament virtue characterised by a godly life lived in conformity with the law. It is the righteous who enjoy God's favour. Here the narrator underlines the significance in faith in that before Abraham had proved himself righteous by his deeds, he is counted righteousness as being right with God. Righteousness, that being right with God. If we look up our 
uh, expository dictionary of Bible words, we see it in this way. Righteousness in the Old Testament is the word. There's many words for it, actually. Sadiq. There is Sadiq, Sadak, um, Yashar, uh, Meshar. But in this instance, in this instance, it is the word Sadakah, Sadakah. Arguably, it says the most significant theological usage of Sadakah occurs in contexts where righteousness is understood as a consequence of divine action, whereby a person's right standing, which is this, what righteousness means, this right standing before God is declared by him through the process of a divine judicial reckoning. The righteousness of Abraham is presented this way in Genesis 15. Such righteousness is also declared to be conditional under the Mosaic law, dependent on one's obedience to it. The quality of righteousness in the sense of living justly before God and humankind with integrity is also indicated in several contexts and in relation to Abraham is one of them. And so we have this righteousness, this right standing with God, which is given, declared onto Moses and this, on the Moses, sorry, on the Abraham. And this follows on what we see of this covenant, this idea that God provides a covenant for Abraham. The, the term for covenant, the Hebrew word for covenant is berit. And the underlying sense of berit is that of a binding agreement or a relationship usually drawn up with a solemn vow. This is particularly the case when the divine covenant between Yahweh and his people is in view. And most occurrences of berit refer to this covenant. It can be defined as an intimate relationship between God and humankind, sovereignly initiated, i.e. initiated by God or started by God, maintained and fulfilled by God alone, and involving a commitment to life and death from both God and humankind. The solemn bonding between God and his people lies at the heart of this covenant phenomenon. This bond testifies to God's mercy and compassion in nurturing and redeeming his people, guaranteeing them an intimate relationship with himself as well as the prospect of a blissful life in the land he had given them. All of this, however, was conditional on the people's response of gratitude, obedience and exclusive loyalty. The terms of the covenant always stemmed from the divine initiative and always demanded a response of obedience from the Israelite people. One remarkable aspect of the covenant as far as the Israelites were concerned was the extraordinary grace and mercy of God that resulted in the endurance of the relationship, notwithstanding the people's frequent violations of their covenant responsibilities. And that's what we see, and that's almost what God says to Abraham. Abraham, at the end of this passage, he gives him, he tells him about this offspring, but then later goes on to then say, well, this is what is going to happen to your people as he puts Abraham into this deep sleep, as he um, brings about this covenant. He de declares that this deep sleep, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions as you, your, for yourself. You shall go to your fathers in peace. There's this idea that God already knows what's going to happen. He knows how the Israelites will stray and how their obedience will waver. 
but his faithfulness is to this covenant that he makes with Abram at this time. But Abraham has these questions at the start of this passage for God. How are you going to do this? What's it going to look like? I don't have any children, so how is this going to be? And question after question after question of how, of how it's going to work. And God simply says, I will provide. I will do it. I will initiate it. I will see it through. I will be faithful to it. I will provide. That's what we see in this passage Abram didn't really deserve this covenant. He hadn't done anything really to warrant it other than simply do what God had required him to do previously. But it wasn't like he was the one who initiated this covenant. It was from God. God initiated it. God started it. God tells him to lay these sacrifices out and he obeys. God forces him into a deep sleep or the spiritual sleep. It's not just a deep kind of tired sleep. It's a deep spiritual sleep. One of the common commentaries simply say that it's this um, uh, kind of deep spiritual weariness, not a common sleep through weariness or carelessness, but a divine ecstasy like that which the Lord caused to fall upon Adam, thereby being wholly taken off from the view of things sensible he might wholly be taken up with the contemplation of things spiritual. It says the doors of the body were locked up that the soul might be private and retired and might act the more freely and like itself. With this sleep, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. Abram didn't warrant it. He didn't do anything to gain it. He simply responds to God. And God says, I will provide. I will give you this. You will be this nation. My promises will stand with you. I will provide. And for each of us in the midst of our lives, God says the, the same thing. I will provide. But sometimes we mix that up and assume that God will say, I'll give you what you want. Or I'll change those circumstances. Or I'll make that thing disappear. Or that problem you're having, it'll go away. The provision that we think we want from God is a new start. Is the bad element, the worry, the fear just disappear. The lottery win to come financial worries to disappear, the job security to come, the family happiness, health, wealth and prosperity. We assume God will say, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you your heart's desire. I'll change the circumstances. I'll make those things disappear. But instead, God says, I will provide. And sometimes that's simply the strength to go on another day. The peace in the midst of the results that you get or the things that you have to go through, whether in health or mind or spirit, the courage to be able to overcome the darkness that you're in or the financial burden that you're bearing, the patience in the midst of all the things that seem to go wrong and all the people who seem to be at you constantly 
the compassion to, to step out, even if you don't feel that like you can or you haven't the right tools for that. God says, I will provide. The whole point of this chapter 15 in God's covenant with Abraham was that it didn't come from Abraham, it came from God. The blessing was a provision for him, the blessing was something that was provided to him. And harvest is the same as that for us, it's a reminder that it comes to us. We're dependent on it and we're thankful for it. And so there are some thoughts on Genesis 15 and God's covenant with Abram. Again, if you have any questions or queries, talk to me. Drop me an email, send me a message. Um, but as you continue through these days, may you be thankful. May you know the provision that you have received. And may you know that God says, I will provide. Grace and peace, my brothers and sisters.